Okay. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, inaugural edition of the Surety Today program. I think we need a theme song, some kind of music, George, to play, like, you know, the nightly news, dun-da-da-dun, the surety, no, maybe not. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner with uh, Wright Constable and Skeen here in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been practicing surety construction law uh, for over 25 years, and I'm joined today by George Backrack, who is also a partner at Wright Constable. George uh, has been practicing, I think, since the Magna Carta, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, George? That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> he admits it. He admits he it. wrote it. Okay. okay. So, um, uh, Surety today is the brainchild of our marketing director, Miss um, Jeannie Hyatt, and we owe a big thanks to Jeannie. Um, the the program is going to be held every second Monday of each month, and it's designed to keep the busy surety claims professional up to date and informed with no fuss and no muss. If you've got a phone, you can call in from wherever you are, on the road, the airport, whatever, and, uh, and, and join in on the call. So the program is only offered to in-house surety claims handlers and managers. It's been very well received so far. Uh, we've gotten uh, about 90 company people signed up. So I think that's a, a pretty good turnout for, for something new like this. Our topic today is a surety case law update. We wanted to, to uh, have a topic that would have the broadest appeal to everybody, so that's what we're starting off with. And George and I come through uh, the surety cases from October 2015 through April 2016 to find uh, what we hope are interesting cases uh, for the claims handler. Now, we're going to provide a list uh, of the cases that we talk about with citations after the call by email. We don't want to waste a lot of time trying to go through the, the, the citations and all that stuff. Um, so uh, just housekeeping, as we get started, if you have any issues with the call, um, get in touch with Jeannie. Her contact information uh, was in that reminder email that came out on Friday. But her uh, email address is jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and, and mute the line now uh, to avoid any background noise or whatever that might be in the way here. So let me try to do that. Okay, so we've got the mute on. Hopefully we muted your lines and not our line. <laughs> Uh, we're also going to be, as you heard, recording the call so that uh, hopefully, uh, and I say hopefully, uh, the technology will be on our side and we can post on our website these recordings of the call so, so you can uh, refer back to it later. We also intend to have the recordings um, transcribed so there will be a written version as well. So uh, at the end, there's going to be a question and answer session, and uh, we will uh, unmute the line at that time so everyone can participate. So at this point, I will turn over to George, who's going to talk about the first case. first case we're going to talk about is called EC Power Systems, an insurance company in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, we tried to choose some cases that would be helpful to surety claims handlers who are facing the kinds of problems we're going to be addressing on a daily basis. In the EC Power case, the question came up as to whether the surety's actions or the actions of the surety's consultant somehow led the subcontractor claimant to miss the one-year statute of limitations under a Miller Act payment bond. Uh, but put another way, 
did the surety and or its consultant's actions create an equitable tolling of the Miller Act payment bond statute of limitations or equitably stop the surety from raising the statute of limitations to the subcontractor's claim? Namely, loose lips can sink ships and they can also sink the defenses of a surety. Now, in the EC Power case, the court ruled in favor of the surety and its statute of limitations defense based upon the facts of the case. And that's the important issue here, the facts of the case, because the takeaway from this case, when you think about it, is that both the surety and its consultant must document their discussions and not unintentionally waive the surety's rights and defenses. So the facts are the key, and there are really two sets of facts. They're the overall facts that you and I face every single day, and then there are the facts specific to the case. With respect to the overall facts, and we have all seen this case before, the surety's principal was a general contractor on a federal project with the Navy. The principal voluntarily terminated its contract because it was financially unable to complete. Three days later, it filed a Chapter 7, so the principal is gone. Uh, the surety and the consultant con contacted the subcontractor on the job, EC Power, because they wanted EC Power to complete its work under a subcontract ratification agreement. And as usual in these situations, there are many issues. The sub was owed contract funds under the contract with the principal. The job had been delayed for years, and so the sub had a delay claim that it wanted to resolve it had performed its last day of work before May 1 of 2014, and over the next year, there were negotiations and discussions and options and everything discussed with the subcontractor about completion of the work, the payment of the contract balances owed, which were finally paid, pending change orders, and the delay claim. So the surety uh, was investigating how to best to perform the contract with the federal government, but in doing so, it was dealing with its uh, subcontractor that it wanted to complete some of the work. But finally, in May of 2015, the surety and its consultant began getting bids from other contractors uh, to complete the sub's work, which was an indication that the sub was not going to be completing the work. The sub then filed suit, and the sub filed suit more than one year after the statute of limitations. So you had something that got extended out and out and out, and then the sub uh, filed suit, but it's after the statute of limitations is run, and, and everybody agreed that was the case. So the sub decided that it would attempt to keep its suit in place uh, despite missing the statute of limitations by claiming that the actions of the surety and its consultant equitably stopped the surety from raising the statute of limitations defense or that the tolling of the limitations had not begun to run and that there was an excusable delay on the part of the sub in filing the suit. And the case goes on to discuss a number of the legal and equitable standards at least in the Ninth Circuit, but they are similar in other circuits, for proving equitable estoppel and equitable tolling. Um, 
And the court went through many specific facts and emails and documents and conversations and affidavits concerning the discussions that the surety and its consultant had with this subcontractor. Notwithstanding all of that, the court found for the surety, said the statute had run, and that the, uh, there was no equitable estoppel or equitable tolling of the limitations. Now again, the surety won based upon the facts. There are many other cases, or at least a number of other cases, where the factual situations are such that the surety doesn't win, that there is an equitable tolling, there is an equitable estoppel. Uh, the EC Power case is not necessarily, when you look at it, a roadmap on how to handle such a case and what needs to be done. Rather, it's a reminder to all of us, and that includes outside counsels, consultants, inside people, that whatever they have to do, whatever they have to do, whether it's the consultant, the lawyer, or the in-house person, to avoid these kinds of cases and, and making statements that equitably stop you from raising whatever defense, whether it's a statute of limitations defense or otherwise. And for that reason alone, the case is worth reading, and we will provide you a citation. Now, Mike, you may have other comments. Yeah, a couple of things in looking at that case. One was that the, uh, the court, you know, noted the fact that in, in many of the communications between the surety and the claimant, uh, there was a reservation of rights. And the court said, so, you know, there really there shouldn't have been any reliance by, by the claimant because the, the surety was continuously reserving its rights and its communications. And I know most uh, claims folks are really good about that, and, and that's one reason why you should be. Uh, the other thing was interesting. They, they went into the internal emails of the consultant to, to see what was going on sort of behind the curtain to see if, you know, there was any kind of intent to, uh, you know, to pull the wool over the eyes here or anything like that of the claimant. And so be aware of that, that, that you know, that those internal communications could, uh, you know, could, could come into play in, in a situation like this. And then the other thing was that, um, you know, there's, <laughs> this case really was, 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 turning on the issue of the communications of the consultant with the claimant. So, you know, not only not only do your do the surety claims handlers uh, communications uh, come into play, but the consultant as well. And there's a case uh, out of I think it's the Fourth Circuit, the Humble Oil case. It's an older case on equitable tolling. And in that situation the surety was financing um, I believe financing the principal in the court even attributed the the finance principal statements to the to the surety for purposes of equitable tolling or, or equitable um, uh, estoppel. So you got to be you got to be really mindful of what communications are are going on there with uh, with claimants and uh, make sure you're reserving your rights. So um, I'm taking on the next case, which is. Uh, Chesney and Company Inc. versus Hartford. This is a uh, United States District Court case out of Maryland from March of this year, and uh, basically it's a dispute that arose out of a construction project to build an Army Reserve Center. The owner was the uh, Corps of Engineers, the uh, bond principal was the general contractor, and the claimant was the subcontractor. Um, the claimant eventually asserted that it had a delay claim. The problem is that all along throughout the, the I think, two-year project history of this thing, the claimant was uh, signing lien release and waiver forms. And in fact, the, 
the subcontract required that uh, lien release and waiver forms be provided in order as a condition precedent to get payment. And so 24 of these lien releases were executed by the subcontractor along the way. And these lien releases had some very, very broad language, um, you know, waive and release all liens and claims and demands against not only the, the contractor but the sureties as well. Um, there were there were parts of it where the claimant affirmed that it was aware of no claims nor any circumstances that could give rise to any future claims. There was um, there was an area of the release where you could write in exceptions to to the release, and and those were left blank when the uh, when the claimant filled out the lien release and waiver form. So, you know, they really uh, they really got themselves in a hole with this. And so the court looked at it and looked at some of the general principles of surety law, you know, and said, well, the surety stands in the shoes of the principal. The liability uh, on a payment bond is defined by the liability in the underlying contract, and the surety is only liable to the extent its principal is liable. And the court found that the surety can also assert the defenses of its principal. It's all basic surety law. Uh, so, you know, the court looked at these releases and, and said, you know, you've released all of your claims that arose during the period covered by these releases. And so the court granted a partial summary judgment to, uh, to the surety in that case. Um, now, you've got to be mindful of the fact that, um, that there are restrictions on releases in bond situations. And the court talks about the one in the Miller Act, which was applicable to this case. And under 40 U.S.C. 3133C, uh, any waiver of a, of a claim on a bond is void unless it's in writing, signed by the party who's making the waiver, and is executed after the party waiving has um, provided labor and or materials. So in this case, the, the restriction didn't apply because these lien releases were all signed. They were in writing, signed by the party waiving, and were signed uh, after the work had been done. So. You know, but there are other um, restrictions. I know in Maryland we have we have a limitation on releasing and waiving bond claims as well. So you got to be careful of that. But I think you know one of the takeaways here is that when you get a claim and you're uh, you know you're doing your initial uh, response letter, typically what claims handlers would do is is ask for uh, various documentation to support the claim. And I think that it would be a good practice to start asking for these lien release and waiver forms because, you know, you might be able to put together, uh, a, you know, a history of, of waivers and, and releasing that, uh, that might uh, get you summary judgment like it did in this Chesney case for Hartford. So um, that's that case. And as George said, we will we'll provide the citation uh, at the end. Actually, in this case, we may act to send it to you. It's, uh, it's a uh, trial court opinion, I mean, a uh, district court opinion. So, name and George, next case. The next case is called Erection Company and Archer Western. And we chose this one because it, it, it brings to the uh, fore an issue that, uh, that pops up occasionally, and you're always cringe when it does. And that's the situation when a surety executes two sets of bonds on the same project. It executes the general's performance and payment bonds to the owner, and then it decides to bond one or more subcontractors to the general. So XYZ surety company has now got bonds for the sub to the general and from the general to the owner. 
and what happens when disputes arise between the general contractor and the subcontractor. The general says to the sub, you messed up this job, you owe me money. The sub says, I've done the work and you owe me this much money and also claims for delay and whatever. So, you know, not all of you out there will bond the same job twice, but some of you do, and I've been involved in these, and they can become messy. In this erection company versus Archer Western case, the, the bond from the general to the owner was for $40 million. The bond from the sub to the general was $1.6 million. Now, what's interesting about this case is that it really isn't a court opinion. It really is a stipulation and consent order because it appears, but is not stated, that in this case, both the general and the sub are solvent and are capable of paying any adverse judgment without requiring the surety in either instance to suffer a loss under either set of bonds. And it appears that both uh, the subcontract and the general are represented by competent counsel. So you have a situation where the surety doesn't think it's going to have a loss, um, because it's got two solvent parties with competent counsel. What the surety wanted to do is not sit at the trial table on a long, protracted uh, litigation case. So what they did is they entered in, the surety entered into a stipulation with both claimants. And here are the issues that the stipulation addressed. The indemnity agreement rights, because the surety wanted, in the case there was a loss, to reserve its rights to go against either the general contract and the indemnitors under the GC's indemnity agreement, or if the sub lost and the surety ended up with a loss to go against the subcontract on the subcontract indemnity agreement and the indemnitors. The, so that issue was addressed in the stipulation. The stipulation said that the surety did not have to attend the trial. It could. Uh, but it did not have to attend the trial, but the surety agreed to be bound by the court's rulings, whether those rulings were for against the general contractor or for against the sub. Um, apparently, one of the issues was that the surety didn't want to be liable for lost profits, and that was entered part of the stipulation. Uh, the stipulation agreed that both sets of bonds were limited to their respective penal sums so that the surety wasn't looking at extra uh, damages beyond the penal sum, and the bonds were admitted in, in evidence. So the surety got what it wanted, which is to get out of the case uh, until a decision was made, uh, really under the auspices that they didn't think that they were ever going to have a loss because their principles were going to take care of it. Um, so the surety did not anticipate a loss uh, from either side, but you know that's not the way that such a case always happens. Uh, I have been in mostly the opposite situations where one of the people, one of the uh, uh, principles is not solvent. Uh, and the case does not address, and the, of course the stipulation does not address the much more difficult issues when that happens. Namely, when either or both the general and the sub are insolvent and can't protect the surety from the loss. Normally I've seen it where the general happens to have money and the sub does not. Um, and you've got a situation where the surety would like to have one side win and not the other, but that's not the case. Um, 
There's also the issue of when there are disputes, who pays for the cost of the prosecution of the claims or the defense of the claims. Uh, and, and that can be a really expensive chore if your sub has um, plenty, uh, you know, has good claims. Um, can the surety settle off at the expense of one of the parties? Can the surety make a policy payment? Uh, and how does that affect them uh, when the surety makes that kind of a payment? Uh, the case doesn't answer those questions. Um, we all know that a surety has to act in good faith with respect to all parties, uh, and usually that happens. There are separate claims people involved and, and separate counsel involved. What this case is worthwhile in is it addresses the issues that may arise, and if you actually do have a case where you have two solvent uh, principles, uh, this is a good case to look at for an agreement if you want to reach such an agreement. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. All right, the next case is uh, Granger Construction Company versus TJ LLC, and Liberty Mutual was the surety involved in it. It's a New York Supreme Court Appellate Division case, uh, December 2015. And the case arose out of the construction of a hotel. <clears throat> the hotel was substantially completed and opened for business before all the work was actually done, and then a problem arose with respect to the fire alarm system, so the hotel had to close down. The owner made demand on the principal to repair uh, the alarm system, but the principal refused because the owner had not been timely paying. <clears throat> so the owner hired another contractor to fix the alarm issue, and in the course of doing that, they found other issues of defective work, and then the owner hired other contractors to fix the other defective work. After the repairs were completed, the owner then sent its notice of intent to declare a default to the surety. Got that one a little backwards. Uh, later, the contractor ended up suing the owner for failure to, to pay, and the owner filed a third-party claim against the surety, uh, make, making a claim on the performance bond. The surety uh, then promptly and correctly moved for summary judgment, asser asserting that the owner had violated several conditions precedent in the bond, failed to provide the notices required by the bond, failed to allow the surety options to perform, uh, failed to give additional notice before filing suit, and basically just ignored all of the conditions of the bond as near as could be tell. So the court uh, granted summary judgment for the surety, and uh, on appeal, the appellate court affirmed uh, finding that the language of the bond created uh, clear, unambiguous conditions precedent, and that the surety's obligation did not arise until those condition precedents were satisfied. And since they weren't satisfied here, uh, the court um, affirmed the summary judgment and the surety was, was out of the case. Now, the opinion doesn't reference what bond form this was. Um, I assume, based on the language that they quoted, uh, it was an A312, and it doesn't talk about what version of the A312 um, it was either. Uh, it could have been a 2010 or it could have been a 1984. So, you know, as most folks know, there's that change in, in 2010 of the A312 bond form. There were lots of things that were put in the performance bond form, and one of the provisions uh, that would come into play on this issue of condition precedent is uh, they added a new paragraph 4 to the 2010, which said that failure on the part of the owner to comply with the notice requirements in Section 3.1 shall not constitute a failure to comply 
with a condition precedent to the surety's obligations or release the surety from its obligations except to the extent that the surety demonstrates actual prejudice. So uh, when you're looking at these, these situations, you got to, you know, RTFB, uh, which I think means read the friendly bond. George has a, a, a more vulgar interpretation of RTFB, <laughs> which we won't share on the phone call. But in any event, uh, I think you got to look at the language and see whether you're dealing with an 84 or a 2010 uh, to make sure you can, you can assert the uh, condition precedent as a defense. The other thing the opinion doesn't talk about is that, you know, the, the, the principal was claiming that it wasn't paid timely and, in fact, filed suit because of lack of payment. Um, and, and the bond is also conditioned, uh, both the 84 and the 2010, you know, it, it says when the, um, let's see here, when the, it requires that there be no owner default. So it says in paragraph 3 on the 84 version, if there is no owner default, the surety's obligation under this bond shall arise after. And then it goes into the discussion of that. Um, and the same is on the 2010 bond. It says uh, if there is no owner default under the construction contract. And owner default is defined in the A312 as failing to timely pay in accordance with the terms of the contract. So that's another potential uh, condition precedent and defense. So, you know, the takeaway is uh, look at the terms of the bond and see if you've got a condition precedent defense. Uh, be careful because condition precedent can be waived or excused, so your conduct uh, might come, in, come into play there. Um, so let's, uh, those are the cases I think that we've got to talk about today. Unfortunately, with a 30-minute format, we, we don't have a lot of time to go into more, but um, um, we've got a couple of issues here. Uh, before we go into our question and answer uh, session, we want to remind everybody that the next edition of the Surety Today will be Monday, June 13th at uh, 1230. It'll be at the same time, second Monday of the month. Uh, you use your same call-in number, participation code, and PIN, and that will remain the same for all the future calls. Our next topic is going to be the Surety's use of collateral demand. Uh, in looking at, at these cases from October through April of, of this year, we we noted that there must have been 15 cases that dealt with the issue of collateral demand and, you know, whether, whether the surety could enforce those, uh, that provision of its GAI. So we're going uh, to delve into that a little bit. And then I want to give everybody a quick rundown on some upcoming uh, surety events. The Philadelphia Surety Claim Association is having its, uh, its meeting on May 18th at Mangiano's in Philly. And then the, the Philadelphia Claims Association will have its golf outing on June 6th. The Chicago Surety Claims Association will have its golf outing on June 9th. And, of course, the Surety Claims Institute will be held from June 22nd through the 24th in Newport, Rhode Island. Thank you all so much for calling in, and we hope um, you'll join us again on the 13th. Now we're going to uh, hopefully unmute the lines and go into the uh, um, question and answer session. And also, we will stop recording. So let me try to do that. <laughs>